0: I'm Emily Kumler, and this is Empowered Health. This week on Empowered Health, we're talking about mental health apps. So many people know about apps that help you relax or sort of purport to be meditation apps, but there are actually sort of medical apps out there that are supposed to help you with anxiety, depression, all kinds of things. And some of these are available to us as consumers and more and more employers are signing up for these kinds of services and then offering them to their employees. So this brings about a whole host of questions, as I'm sure you can imagine, not least of which is how do you distinguish one app from another besides just the reviews that are online, which we know more and more are now paid for, whether it's the Apple Star review or whether it's like, you know, something that you find by Googling in the app So you have to kind of vet these things a little bit, both for your own privacy and also to make sure that they're doing what they say they're going to do, and that they're treating the condition that you think you have, or that you're wondering that you have, or helping you to set goals. A lot of them seem to have very specific functions, whereas others are sort of catch-alls. So I immediately, obviously, as someone who's very protective felt like my ears went up when I heard about these apps, because I just think, huh, that's sort of strange, right? That like you're going to use an app to try to help with your mental illness or something that's really hard for you. Like I just, I always am sort of skeptical of our reliance on technology, when really what we're missing a lot of the time is human interaction. But I wanted to be open to the idea that these apps could be useful. So we taped these interviews. Then we had the COVID-19 pandemic hit And what we saw was sort of fascinating, which was that a lot of people probably like me that were a little resistant to some of these sort of telehealth platforms were kind of forced to use them because we couldn't actually have in-person interaction. And so sort of anecdotally, I think, you know, anybody who had to have a doctor's appointment over the last few months has probably had it via Zoom or Skype or a phone call or something And I think that's probably opened all of us to the possibility that these could be useful. And certainly things like insurance companies didn't used to pay for any kind of telehealth benefits. And they have changed that because they needed to make sure that people were having some access to care. And the only way to do that was to do it virtually. So we're going to start this episode by talking to somebody who kind of researched this and then has now built his own platform, which is called Ginger, which is a provider-based platform or an employer-based platform. And as you'll hear from him, there are sort of different levels of care. So you kind of can have a coach that you can text with all the time, 24-7, or you can be bumped up and actually get some more traditional therapy but it is run only through the employer. So we could not test it out. And we're reliant on the founders sharing of information in this interview.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, My name is Karin Singh. I'm co-founder and chief operating officer at Ginger. uh, And we are an on-demand mental health care system. Think of it like a a virtual clinic for mental health care with a team of Coaches, therapists, and psychiatrists, uh, all available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and typically under a minute, uh, all backed by technology and available through your smartphone. I sort of stumbled into this space, frankly, about a, a decade ago, um, was, was working in uh, the biotechnology world, launching uh, billion-dollar cancer drugs, frankly, kind of slammed into uh, the space, had a loved one who tried to take their own life and sort of shook me to my core. Uh, I got a phone call out of the blue really and started to, to, to dig into this space in, in, of mental health care. And uh, the deeper I dug, the the more I realized just how broken it was uh, and that mental health is is something that actually impacts most everyone. And so... I decided to go back to graduate school at MIT and Harvard at the business school and medical school, really interested in this intersection of, of healthcare and technology and particularly data. The, the deeper I dug, the more I realized there is no blood test for your depression. There's no easy way to measure your stress. And I wanted to see if we could bring a little rigor and objectivity to a space that's really sorely lacked it. And so we've been on this journey for the better part now of about eight years uh, and uh, originally started as a technology platform and ultimately decided to become a, a fully integrated uh, mental health care system. We typically work with large self-insured employers and, and health plans who offer Ginger as a benefit to their teams and now are working with over 300,000 uh, Cover Lives employ- employees, uh, everybody from a, a Pinterest and a BuzzFeed in the technology world to Sephora, the large cosmetics re- retailer to even a, a SEIU 775, a, a large labor union made up of home health care workers. So pretty wide spectrum of, of membership. The company itself is actually set up as a, as a medical entity. So we are legally a, a hospital or a clinic, if you will. It's just that our front door is a, a mobile application rather than, uh, you know, a physical setting.
0: And so what does that mean from the patient perspective? Like that you guys are a medical company, like you're HIPAA compliant, I would imagine, like all that kind of stuff. Or is it, does that have more to do with the, the fact that you guys go through the insurers or the company rather than the patient portal or the patient facing sort of? Like I couldn't go sign up
1: for this, right? It's it's a little bit of both. Okay. Legally, we're set up as a, as a medical entity, which means that we abide exactly by all the regu- rules and regulations that a, a typical hospital or you know your doctor's office might. So that includes you know protecting your your data through HIPAA uh, and and ensuring that that your data is, is really only used for the direct delivery of your care. But it also means that uh, we are actually when we deliver care, uh, that care can be covered as part of your health insurance. And so you know uh, both both were were incredibly important for us. Uh, to make sure that a people feel comfortable and and confident and be able to access care in a virtual care model without it without having to sacrifice any sort of privacy, uh, but also that they can access that care in a way that doesn't actually cost uh, a whole lot, where typically most of most mental health providers are are out of network. and so as a result, uh, they don't have, accept health insurance. And so wow, when you when you seek out a provider, uh, you're typically paying paying out of pocket. And that is a huge problem that we're facing as a country
0: right now is sort of like this shortage of mental health care providers or access to good mental health care. So I think, it, you know, let's just back up a little bit. And will you just explain what the app does and like sort of what it's capable of or like what the parts of it are that are most often used?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think you covered off on two things. We'll, we'll, I'll talk through the sort of member experience and how you engage with the app. And then we can talk a little bit about the uh, sort of broader Challenges in in the ecosystem. So the way it might work is if you, let's say, work at a a company that we're currently partnering with or or have access through your your health plan, you would download the uh, Ginger mobile app from the App Store or the the Google Play Store, and you'd enter a unique access code that that we provide you through through a variety of different mechanisms, through some direct communications. Um, And within typically under a minute, you are talking to a uh, mental health coach. Uh, engaging via text. And so you're able to access uh, and talk to that coach 24 hours a day, seven days a week.
0: And that's a real person. It's not an automated <laughs> algorithmic.
1: That's that's exactly right. That, that's exactly right. It's It's a real person. These are typically master's level providers who have a background in mental health care they've worked uh, and have typically uh, worked in psychology or related field uh, they go through about 200 hours of training on our our system to ensure that they can deliver high quality care but exactly right you're you're talking to a real human and, and there's uh, we've really found that there's no there's no replacement for that uh, personal connection that that um, a personal accountability and so the coach really gets to know you through through text, and um, you can uh, have a conversation about you know what might have brought you uh, there in the first place and and the coaches are trained to really uh, use techni- evidence based techniques like motivational interviewing to start to pull out uh, the core issues that you might be tackling and pull together a, a a game plan or a care plan if you will to support your needs and so that's I'd say 90% of the use cases for for most members who engage with Ginger, they can talk to their coach via text and they can also engage in a variety of content uh, that we've developed in the application, things like breathing techniques um, or goal-setting techniques uh, that sort of complement the the care that the coach is providing. But for about 10% of members who might need an escalated level of care, uh, they might actually need to see a therapist or even a a psychiatrist, the coach will then uh, get you connected to someone on our support team who sets you up with an appointment within typically a few days. And uh, that's a, a far cry just kind of speaking to some of the challenges in the space for uh, you know the, the typical wait times for uh, most people who are seeking out a mental health provider. Uh, it can be 25 days on average in certain rural parts of the country, upwards of six weeks. And so we typically are able to then uh, set you up with an appointment within a few days. And you'll have a video session with those clinicians, so with your therapist or psychiatrist, and that's a a typical call it 45 to 60 minute video session. And the idea is that you can continue to work with that uh, with your coach in between sessions. And so rather than engaging with your therapist once a week, let's say for eight weeks, uh, you actually have the ability to continue to engage with your coach on whatever it is that your therapist might be working with you on. And it's that team-based care model, that kind of combination of not only the coaches, but the clinicians and the technology and the backbone that really makes up the sort of fundamental experience for the member.
0: And so is there communication between the coach and the therapist?
1: There is. We, we work in a, in a team-based care model. And so on the back end, and that's really where a lot of the technology plays a, a critical role, is uh, being able to share notes from those conversations and make sure that there's coordination and collaboration. Uh, it's something that it's typically and historically incredibly challenging in healthcare and, and actually an area where, you know, a virtual care model and technology can play a great role in in supporting that communication and collaboration. So uh, the care is coordinated and, and folks get the, the right level of support at the right time.
0: And is the coach sort of like a gatekeeper or like a prerequisite to getting the therapist? Or can people go on and just sort of say like, nope, I need a psychiatrist?
1: Yeah, the, the, the latter is v- very much true. The, the challenge is that most people you don't necessarily have the the right level of education uh, around kind of what's required. And so the coach can help them with that. They can give them a sense for the kind of different types of care that we might offer and when it might be most useful, but they're by no means a gatekeeper. So if an individual comes through and they they ask to see an an additional level of care, uh, we'll set them up for that and at least have an initial evaluation or appointment uh, so they can understand uh, if there's additional diagnoses or additional support that they need.
0: And are there any limitations on like that? I mean, I feel like a lot of insurance companies will say like, oh, you can go for eight sessions or whatever it is that they're willing to pay for. And then the rest is out of pocket or you have to pay a higher percentage of the cost. Do you guys have um, like sort of stop gaps or whatever you want to call it like that?
1: Yeah, you, you, a lot of that actually I think has to fundamentally to do again with another sort of challenge in the space is is the payment model because most most of those uh, insurance companies and others uh, providers are working a, in a fee for service environment where you, you pay per transaction or per per interaction for our coaching um, that is uh, complete that 's unlimited care uh, so you can access that as much as you want twenty four hours a day seven days a week uh, you can continue to engage with those coaches as as and when you need to um, depending on on what kind of plan your employer may have purchased for you, uh, a good a number of those sessions may actually be fully covered, or you might just need to pay a copay to seek a therapist or psychiatrist. But then there, there are, in some cases, you know, certain limitations to that in terms of the number of sessions that are fully covered, after which you'd pay out of pocket or, or pay and, and, and get reimbursed as an out of network expense.
0: And then I feel like I'm just like firing questions at you, and it should be more of a conversation. But I'm just curious as somebody who has always sort of believed that therapy is something that we all need, right? Like we all need somebody who's not a part of our family or our friend group who we can go talk to about things that we're thinking about. And I don't even think actually it needs to be a big struggle. I think it's just sort of like helpful to organize your life experiences. But I also know that in my personal quest to find like the world's greatest therapist, it's a compatibility game a lot, right? So like you might go talk to somebody and realize after the first Session Or after the first three sessions, like, you know what, like, I, this person isn't getting me or I don't really feel comfortable telling them all my deepest, darkest secrets or whatever. Is there flexibility or like, how are you matchmaking therapists to people?
1: It is very much a, a personal decision. We, we talk about it often internally as, as establishing therapeutic alliance. A number of studies actually demonstrated that that therapeutic alliance is really most critical to the kind of care that someone might receive, and that's personal. And so what that means is uh, when you engage with your coach, for instance, when you first first uh, installed App mobile app, through the course of that conversation, you may decide that you know, this isn't isn't a good fit for whatever reason. And um, you have the ability to actually uh, rate your coach after every interaction. And what we do is um, for any interaction that's below a four out of five stars, um, our support staff actually reaches out and asks uh, what might be going on. And if, um, you know, coach fit might actually be a reason for, uh, let's say a lower score. And the same is actually true for our therapy and psychiatry interactions as well. And so really for us, it's We've built a system that's based on measurement, that's based on data, that's tracking this information and creating kind of trigger points to, uh, to reach out. Because for many people, you know, they, they feel embarrassed or they, they might actually feel scared to make a change for fear that they might lose, you know, lose the care altogether. And so we're trying to figure out ways where we can reduce that friction and reduce that burden, but also ultimately empower the patient or the member to raise their hand if they feel like they want to make a change.
0: I'm sort of curious, like how often that happens that people switch because I feel like like you guys actually have numbers on that, whereas like, I don't know that anybody's like really tracked that privately.
1: We do. We do. Uh, You know, we have we have numbers on a a whole host of of, uh, uh, information, everything from, you know, the average time to to see your coach, which is typically about 56 seconds, the average star rating across every interaction on the system, which right now is hovering about 4.6 to 4.7 out of five stars. Uh, and that's for coaching therapy and psychiatry. And then ultimately, you know, something we haven't talked a whole lot about, but actually measuring the, the efficacy of the, of the treatment. And so you, we use two primary uh, surveys, the PHQ-9 and the GAD-7. They're the two standard assessments for depression and anxiety. And we find that 70% of our members see a, a full symptom response within roughly 8 to 12 weeks, which is about two times um, the leading collaborative care protocol in this space.
0: And what do you attribute that to? Like, why is Ginger so much more effective than the status quo?
1: You know, I think it has to go with sort of reducing the friction at every step in the process for a member. So it it starts with the stigma, which is to say you have to admit to yourself that you have a challenge. And for many people, that's incredibly, incredibly hard. And you then ultimately have to find a provider. Uh, And like we talked about, uh, finding a provider uh, is is incredibly hard. And, you know, 50% of of U.S. counties today don't even have a, a single psychiatrist. And then finally, when you get into to see a clinician, seventy percent of that care is is inadequate. And so, you know, every step of that process, we thought, how could technology and how could a new care delivery model sort of transform that? And so, the fact that the app is available twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, and you can talk to your um, to your coach reduces the the friction of access right out of the gate. It increases the likelihood that someone's actually going to take that next step once they decide that they're actually looking for some level of support. And the fact that they can access that, you know, conveniently, we've heard stories of members who are talking to their coach uh, with their, you know, their spouse or their partner uh, on the couch next to them. You know, they're effectively having a session, if you will, with a, about that individual, and uh, they don't even know. And so that, that sort of flexibility and convenience factor is really, really valuable. But then finally, you know, it is about leveraging data to, to understand what works for whom, when and how. And I think that's really the new frontier as as what gets me incredibly excited is thinking about how we can start to bring technology and data to, to figure out um, this incredibly personal decision. Like you said earlier, you know, the, the, the relationship you have with your clinician is incredibly personal. And... Uh, there are patterns that emerge. There's uh, a whole quality assurance process that we run on those conversations using natural language processing and other sort of augmented artificial intelligence techniques that give us gives us better data about the kinds of uh, traits that might make for a better alliance or better care. Um, and we use that to inform who we might recruit. We use that to inform the clinicians themselves so they can actually improve the care they're delivering and ultimately to actually share that back with the member in different forms to demonstrate that they're seeing progress over time. Easy question, but I think lots of dimensions that might go into that. Uh, and something, frankly, that we're continuing to research and, and um, really track to improve the system over time.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's also interesting to me because I feel like that, you know, a million years ago when I was in college studying psychology, it's like there's a huge amount of emphasis in a therapeutic session that's put on the last 10 minutes, <laughs> right? Sure. Like there's, And I think, you know, you kind of see this with friends when you go out to coffee or drinks or whatever. It's the same kind of thing. Like people will talk and talk and talk. And then it's like when you realize the conversation's over, that's when you often share the thing that you're, it maybe is the most significant. And I wonder when you're having, when you have access like that, how that changes that kind of traditional model of therapy, right? Where it's like, okay, we've got 50 minutes, go, right? Like yep. I can text you that my husband's annoying me because he's on the, you know, like he's sitting there, he, <laughs> he's burned dinner again. Like, you know what I mean? And like that's just, it sort of changes it. Maybe it makes it more personal. I mean, not personal in that obviously therapy is very like intimately personal, mm-hmm. but like friendship, like, do you know what I mean?
1: I do. You know, it's a it's a really interesting observation, um, and I and I agree. I I don't actually know if we have data on whether the the like the conversation, let's say, the video session you might have with your therapist is any different. But what is different is the 167 hours between appointments. So let's say you're typically seeing your therapist once a week. There's a whole lot of time in between sessions and you forget what happens you know you have recency bias you remember maybe the issue that happened yesterday but certainly not 6 days ago and the value of actually having this team-based care model is that the coach actually sort of takes what you learn in your in your therapy appointment or maybe what you uncover and really starts to build some some solutions and some and some training for you to to work on that in between sessions and you know, I think where that's played out actually interesting enough is we typically see that most members who are in therapy uh, are in therapy for about seven sessions, and so that maps to the, the standard of care, which is typically around eight sessions for a full course of treatment. The challenge is that you know, for for most other people in the in 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 a traditional mental health care setting, we just don't even know how long they're in there for, and so uh, I do think that there, you know there's changes like this to the model that. Uh, a might encourage more trust or more transparency, but B might also encourage better efficacy so that people can graduate faster and aren't necessarily don't necessarily need to be in care for, uh, you know, in perpetuity, if you will.
0: Well, yeah, but you know, that's also interesting, because I feel like that's such a goal oriented way of thinking of therapy. Like, I mean, I think it's like, if you're going in, and you're like, okay, I need to lose 20 pounds, like, let's get this program started kind of thing. Like, why do I eat when I'm sad? Or like, something that sort of sounds cliched. Then yeah. it's really easy to come up with, like, action items. But I think the point of analysis is that you decide what's important by reflection, right? So, like, if I go into a therapy appointment and it's been a week or a month or whatever since my last appointment, that that judgment of, like, okay, I have an hour to talk about the things that are the most important to me is a huge part of the a process, Right? Rather than saying like, oh, I see from your coach that this week, like you, you know, had a hard time with this or you had a hard time with that. I'm making that call by sharing what I feel like is most important. You know, I sort of think that the idea that the time in between sessions is a period of reflection and analysis done by the patient, right? So that like I go in and I know, gosh, I'd love to spend four hours talking to you about all the things that are on my mind, but I only have an hour And I need to talk about the things that are really bothering me the most or that I'm most excited about or, you know, sort of, I think the idea that everything has to be based around a goal of some sort of behavior to change is just a different kind of therapy, right? I mean, like, so that's sort of interesting, because I think in some ways, technology is just perfect in terms of reminding you, oh, you know, like everything from like your Fitbit or your aura ring telling you like how you're sleeping or how you're walking or whatever. But it's so interesting because I feel like when you're thinking really deeply about your mental health, a lot mm-hmm. of that is stuff that you actually have to kind of just sit with and it can be kind of mundane, right? And and it's less action oriented. Does that make sense?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, no, it's, it's a great observation. I, and I think it both is true in that there may be certain things that you raise where you have a specific goal and you're and you're looking to make some progress against things, but then there are others, and certainly within therapy, where where the the point of it is actually the reflection and to review and to then you know dissect, um, but then to 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 put away, if you will, um, or to to be able to figure out a way to feel comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's the power, I'd say, of this team based approach where. Uh, the coach can help you in having that conversation in between sessions. It may not necessarily be, again, an eight weeks to happiness. It's not a specific program that we're running you through. Uh, and and that's, that's very rigid. It's very personalized. Every individual kind of has a different path through this. But there are also certain, uh, ultimately, they, they lead up to, for instance, using a measure like the PHQ-9 that's used for the treatment of depression or the assessment of depression to figure out if if these thing, if this issue might actually be impacting other parts of your life, like your sleep or your relationships and whatnot. And so it, um, it is uh, still solution-oriented, uh, if not necessarily goal-oriented.
0: And so what percentage of people are using ginger because they have some sort of depression? Like when you do the initial baseline, what percentage does that represent of the population that you're
1: treating? It's hard to talk through the to the averages uh, because sometimes they, they skew sort of the, the specifics. But uh, largely speaking, about 90% of the population can actually be supported within just the uh, coaches themselves. And for about 10%, they might actually have a, a diagnosed clinical issue that needs uh, requires a licensed clinician like a therapist or psychiatrist.
0: Again, just to make sure that I have this right, if somebody felt like they were depressed, they could right away get linked up with a clinician rather than a coach.
1: In addition, that's right. So it would, it would not be instead of, but okay. exactly. They would also be able to get escalated to see a therapist or psychiatrist if they'd like to.
0: And so what are some of the most common things that people are using ginger for? Like what are some common problems that people are working on or things they're looking for solutions to.
1: It's fascinating. This list has probably been pretty consistent for the better part of three or four years now. And now that we're live in about 19 countries beyond the United States, it's also consistent. People use different language and different words to describe them, but largely speaking, it's about workplace stress. It's about relationship issues. And often it's about sleep. So those are the the top three most common uh, challenges that people bring and those relationships could be in many forms. It could be your spouse. It could be um, a brother. It could be, you know, a um, father, son. Um, but there, there's a lot of fa- family dynamic questions that come up. Um, and I'd say that, th- that along with the, the workplace s- or stress uh, and, and stress related to your job, um, that, that's probably most common and most consistent no matter what time of year and no matter what deployment or, or what uh, uh, employer or health plan we're working with.
0: I mean, that's fascinating, too, the workplace stress, because I think Americans think that they're like the most stressed out, right? And if you're seeing that in other countries, too, that's sort of probably more a product of the time that we're
1: living in. You know, it it absolutely is. And we've seen certain spikes in in kind of other higher uh, risk issues, even things like suicidal ideation or homicidal ideation. Uh, We saw an incredible spike um, last year after Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade um, you know, committed suicide. And we've seen other situations like the elections, for instance, in the United States uh, on a pretty regular basis that where we see a, a, a material spike in utilization, sometimes three, even four X on a, on a typical week or typical month. And you know, the, the data allows us to be able to actually predict that and make sure that we have enough capacity or supply or, or clinicians, if you will, to support that. Um, but uh, it, it, it's absolutely true.
0: And then in terms of thinking about acute mental health, Do you think that GINGER is an application that would help somebody who was feeling suicidal?
1: So, GINGER is not a a crisis resource. Uh, So, whenever we do see individuals who are in crisis, we refer them out to a variety of different great programs, the National Suicide Hotline, Crisis Text Line. Uh, There are a couple of really great resources that are available. That being said, we often find people who are sort of in a precursor state to that. And so we might leverage the natural language processing that's happening, that's scanning the conversations of our our coaching interactions to flag individuals who might be trending in a certain way and flag that for not only the coach, but perhaps some of the clinical supervisors to review those cases and and consider um, either escalating that individual up to, let's say, to see a therapist or psychiatrist for a more robust evaluation and or to to escalate them out because they actually might need uh, in person an in person hospitalization or in person treatment and so you know I think it's important to know what we are just as much as what we're not and so I'd say for a vast majority of uh, mental health needs call it about eighty uh, percent we can treat that in a virtual care model but there are absolutely certain individuals that are more acute that do require some of the in person resources and I think that's really where we see ourselves helping to support the massive Sort of supply and demand imbalance in the space, which is to say, there are some great clinicians and great existing clinics and infrastructure, but it's it's not enough to meet the tidal wave of need. And so, if we can actually support those that are more mild, moderate, and even some that are acute, uh, we can actually free up some of that the the in person capacity for those that are most acute and those that are most in need of of an in person treatment.
0: And about how long are the typical interactions between the
1: patient or client? yeah, we refer to them as as members. A member. okay. It, it really depends. Uh, so typical is again a hard one in this case because we, we the, the point of the system is to really build a lot of flexibility and to adapt to whatever someone might be coming with. So for instance, you know, we have some members who um, reach out to their coach at two am. they're nervous, they've got an interview the next day, they're going to be on air want to uh, want to work through a might be having a panic attack and talk to their coach and get resolution? And that's good enough. There are others who, let's say, are working with their coach or even their therapist for the course of call it eight to 12 weeks. Uh, they see they they started a score of X and they're down to a score of half X by, you know, that eight to 12 week mark. And they they feel like they're they're in a good spot, and uh, they might actually kind of graduate "quote unquote" at that point. And then there are others in, and this is kind of roughly one third, one third, one third here that um, will engage with their coach uh, or their, their clinical network for uh, an extended period of time, months, if not even in some cases years on end. And you know, all through three of those are are valid sort of ways to use the system. They're different. I think that the critical part is that you know we can we can measure that you're seeing some improvement on whatever it is that you're trying to, to work through, uh, and that you can we can provide transparency and visibility to you around that. Because ultimately, this is about, uh, you know, we built an experience that's first and foremost for the member. And if we can get them better, or get them feeling like they have uh, fewer, let's say, depression, uh, depression-free, or more rather, depression-free days, then that's, that's success. And that's ultimately kind of how we're measuring the impact that we have.
0: And so then on the flip side of that would be like, how do you measure the people who are providing the services, whether it's the coaches or the practitioners?
1: We we do a lot of work around uh, clinical quality assurance. And so there's a number of different techniques that we're using or stra- approaches that we're using. So it's some of the data that we've just discussed, the, the satisfaction metrics, the um, access metrics, and the quality metrics are, are really critical to that. But then it's actually the next level of detail, which is to say, you know what makes for we were talking about therapeutic alliance and, and how do you, how do you establish rapport and and doing that over text for instance is a is kind of a, a unique uh, skill set mm-hmm. uh, but there are there are certain ways that and certain coaches who've developed certain techniques that work incredibly well. And so we'll we'll look for sort of what level of engagement or ongoing engagement do we see? Does a certain coach have, you know, higher rate of that or a lower rate of that? Do certain coaches actually engage with their members more over a certain period of time? There's a number of dimensions that, that are feeding into it. We've studied the clinical literature and, and have actually uh, honed it on a, on quite a few sort of core attributes that we think make for a great coach and or a great clinician. And then we're leveraging that some of the data to effectively, for instance, uh, shortlist a set of transcripts that go through human review. So that can actually go through an, another level of review from some of the clinical supervisors. So we can actually work with the coaches and, and coach the coaches. So we're actually leveraging that data because it's it's recorded, if you will, uh, as part of the, the chat conversation to improve the kind of care that they're delivering. And frankly, I think that's been a, a really critical part of of how we've been able to retain our staff and ensure that they're not burning out and they're continuing to grow is that they feel like uh, they're continuing to learn and get better at their craft and that we're really closely monitoring when they feel like they might be at their edge where they might actually be at their limit and we, we need some additional capacity to support the, the volume that's coming through. So kind of I think all of that data comes together in this quality assurance program to give us better feedback for our coaches and identify what makes for a great coach.
0: And then are they all in like a, I'm imagining them in like some big call center or something, or are they like (laughs) at their homes? I mean, I feel like if you have to be available at like two in the morning, right? Like, that's sort of an interesting, but like, and uh, you know, you have to like sort of have every enough people available that like, if there was some sort of national emergency and everybody was freaking out that you'd have enough people available. (laughs)
1: That's right. So we have a a pretty sophisticated model on the back end that's anticipating demand by, you know, frankly, minute, if not certainly half hour blocks throughout throughout the day and throughout the week and certainly by seasonality. So we have different shifts for our coaches that are not all clearly working 24-7. Um, and those shifts match to when we see that those peaks. And mm-hmm. so typically, you know, uh, in fact, our, our peaks are actually in off hours. And so, you know, a typical therapist, let's say, is available 9 to 5, Monday through Friday. And what we find is our a lot of our peak utilization is outside of that time. And whether it's even seeing a therapist on a, you know, Thursday at 9pm or a Saturday at 10am because your, your kids are at soccer practice, it's being able to sort of actually create supply for when we know there's demand. And I think right now, you know, uh, the reverse is true. And the reality is for most working people, uh, being able to carve out time during the middle of the day and going to see a clinician is, is incredibly challenging. And so that's, you know, again, where a virtual care model like this can be really, really valuable. Yeah, and I think
0: one of the other things that's striking to me just, I mean, because I feel like what that does in a, you know, sort of larger, on a larger level is it solves for the access problem just in terms of like the logistics of someone's day, right? So, like if you have a lot of work-life balance stress that you're trying to figure out and you're at it, you know, you leave for your job at seven in the morning and you get back at six at night, like you've got to find a therapist who's taking patients who takes insurance, which like, by the way, that will leave you with like five people in the whole country. <laughs> and then you have to right. find somebody who's willing to take you at eight o'clock at night, right? Like So I think that is phenomenally important that you guys are sort of open those other hours, because I think that flexibility will obviously increase the sort of incidence of use or the adherence to the program or, you know, any of these other things that just is so logical.
1: You know, I I do think that part of our our vision and our mission, a, a vision of a world where mental health is never an obstacle is that we can find you early. We can get you treatment and support far before you're at a point of of being, uh, or at least ideating around uh, suicidal thoughts uh, or even homicidal thoughts. And so that's we believe the power of these sorts of approaches and technologies, and certainly Ginger is, is is one example of that. Um, but there's now you know really a growing movement that's building around this that you're dealing with life, you're dealing with stress, and uh, life can be incredibly hard. And if you can actually start to get care. When things are bubbling, rather than when things are full-blown, uh, we might start to head off, you know, at a at a societal level this this trend that you, that you're citing, um, which is absolutely been true that the you know suicidal rates are going up across the board.
0: After talking to Karen, it seemed important to talk to somebody who's a practitioner. So, what do therapists think of these apps, and how does it change the way? that you do therapy, both from the patient's perspective and also from the therapist's perspective. We reached out to somebody who is a therapist and also in charge of sort of regulating these and evaluating them. And she's gonna talk a little bit about how the experience is both different using an app than it is sitting in front of somebody, but how this access to care issue is such a big deal that almost like what we have suffered through in this pandemic, that in some ways, this is probably much better than nothing. But she's going to explain to us from the therapist's perspective why these are really interesting and hold a lot of potential.
2: This is Dr. Lynn Bufka. I'm a licensed psychologist. I work for the American Psychological Association. I do a lot of work as it relates to healthcare policy and intervention, and I have a clinical specialty in the treatment of anxiety and other related disorders.
0: We are excited to have you on and we're going to try and focus this conversation a little bit on the sort of new phenomenon of telemedicine as it relates to mental health. And so I know that you're sort of working on some of the guidelines and stuff like that for people to have a better understanding of how to sort of source the good advice online from the bad advice online. And I mean that in terms of providers who are providing services. I'm sort of curious in terms of the evolution of this. Like, I mean, I'm sure the technology is a component of it, Mm -hmm. but it also strikes me that more and more Americans find themselves in positions where they don't have access to good care. I mean, we see this with OBGYNs, right? In rural areas, there's like no OBGYNs anymore. Right. And so I sort of wonder whether it's like a supply and demand kind of being met by technology or whether this is something else that there's a new audience that might not seek out you know, psychiatric care or mental health care in general, but feels more comfortable doing it on the internet?
2: So I think there's a a combination of things that are happening. Certainly, we have technology that enables us to deliver health care via apps, via telehealth, via all kinds of tools. So that has certainly been a piece of it. We certainly have seen greater concentrations of professionals in urban areas, leaving those farther afield, less access to specialized kinds of care which would facilitate more technology-based interventions. And I think there's also a growing understanding that mental health and psychological concerns are not something that you have to just suffer with, right? That there is the opportunity for help. And I think we've really turned a corner in the U.S. about that, that people are recognizing, no, I don't have to just sit with this anxiety all the time. There might be something I can do. I don't have to be depressed or be... Have struggle with the intrusive memories. there may be something I can do. So people are more open to that as a possibility. So it's kind of a confluence, all of that. And then I think the the last piece of it is we're learning a lot about the kinds of information and tools that are really helpful to individuals. And increasingly, that can be conveyed in ways via technology that makes it accessible to individuals. It doesn't necessarily always require a one-on-one interaction with a professional. There might be ways technology can augment and facilitate that.
0: What are some examples of that?
2: So there are some wonderful apps that have been developed often through the VA or the Department of Defense because they're trying to reach a very scattered audience who needs their help. So there's various apps that can be used that can be helpful. There are ways that as a therapist, I might direct somebody to use things online in between sessions to sort of facilitate the work that we're doing. And sometimes it makes sense even clinically to meet via technology as the intermediary. If you're a far distance away and we're able to meet via uh, Skype, well not Skype because of the quality of the data security. But if we're able to use a secure platform to meet, that facilitates us having sessions that maybe we wouldn't be able to have if it always required us to be face to face in the same room.
0: Okay, so what are some examples of the kind of intermediary like between sessions kind of stuff? Is that like behavioral tracking kind of
2: stuff? Sure. So there's a lot of things that can be done. There can be educational materials where you might talk about a particular issue in session and then give someone, direct someone to an app or to some uh, materials online or some guided reading to amplify what they've learned in the session and to think about how it applies to their life. It could be that you have an app that supports, say, smoking cessation and gives you some accountability in between your sessions with your your therapist or your health coach whoever you're working with to try to to try to quit smoking or maybe you are using something like to track behaviors.
0: And so as a provider, how do you vet those kinds of things?
2: That is a really tricky question because there's it's so much is out there. But what we always recommend to individuals is look at the source of the development of it. Is it a source that You understand to have a basis in mental health, that there are individuals who have some expertise in the content area. So you want to make sure that the content of the source, the app, the whatever, is based on the best that we know in the psychological the professional research. But then you also want to look at how easy is it to use and does does it make sense for the needs of the individual that you have? Is it technology that fits with what their skills are?
0: And so are most of those apps that you're recommending or that you feel should be on an approved list coming out of hospitals or universities, like sort of the traditional research fields, or are they coming more out of like the Silicon Valley tech startup world?
2: They come from many sources. They come from health systems. They come from universities. They do come from startups. And so when they're coming from a place that maybe doesn't have the cred in terms of healthcare, like uh, automatically you might have with a university maybe or with a hospital. You know, as a provider, I try to look at who are the developers behind it? Do they seem to have mental health professionals who have worked to develop the content or have served as consultants in the development of it? So I try to look at those kinds of things before I make a determination about the app and is it appropriate for use with the individuals I would want to use it with.
0: I mean, I immediately am struck by the fact that like everybody is tracking everything, right? And so... I would think the privacy component, which I think is really hard to judge. I mean, we had, you know, this incredible sort of ovulation tracking app was just like less than a year ago was exposed for being funded by all these pro-life people. Mm. So you kind of wonder, like women are recording every little detail of their sex life and like if they get pregnant and what they decide to do with the pregnancy. And now all that data is in the hands of, you know, these individuals who clearly have a political agenda. I sort of wonder about stuff like that when it comes to mental health, where the information might be really private.
2: Right. And so I think that's another thing that people really want to take a look at is, is the information contained within the app? Is there some way that information is being transmitted to others? And if so, under what circumstances? How is that information going to be used? Is it de-identified? All of that's really important to know. So I'm a person who's gonna be much more likely to ask you to do something that's contained within your device. You know, that's not likely to be sharing that information in other ways because of that, because I want you to be able to use it as best suits you.
3: And
0: honestly, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly.
2: But that's tricky, because how many of us really read the fine print on things, right?
0: Well, right. I mean, these disclaimers are like, you know, 30 pages long, I don't think they're actually designed for anybody to fully understand what's in them.
2: Exactly. So I think it's really important, you know, for anybody to really think through the use of an app and to talk with, you know, a professional about what have they used in their practice, what are the limitations, those kinds of things to really think it through.
0: And then just to sort of touch on the idea of doing therapy, you know, whether it be via some sort of online video chat, or just this sort of remote idea, my bias towards this, just to put this out there is that if you already have a relationship with a therapist who you've been meeting with regularly in person and then you move or you're traveling or something and you can't get to them that rapport that was established earlier allows you to carry through remotely. I mean I'm a big believer in like we all let off energies, right? And that not 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 necessarily only in the metaphysical sense, but that like body language often speaks volumes, right? Facial expressions tell us a lot. And some of that you capture on a screen, but I think there's something about really being in a room with somebody and like sort of smelling them and, you know, sharing the space together that's much more intimate, right? And that makes you maybe feel more both, I would say, like vulnerable and also supported, right? Rather than like just sort of a chat online. Is there any research behind that or like any data that you've seen that either backs up or refutes that idea?
2: It's a really good question. I would say most therapists get into wanting to be therapists for exactly those reasons. They feel that being present with somebody, there's some really important value to that in the the person, in person, in the room really has meaning to it. When we look at data comparing outcomes of interactions, there's some pretty good data supporting uh, video conferencing as a means for good outcomes for psychotherapy. So that seeing the person on the screen, being able to talk with them, that seems to be can be as effective as in the room face to face.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, because I even just feel like you're just like when I'm on my computer, if I'm chatting with somebody, you know, and an email pops up or the phone rings or something like that's so different than being in a therapist's office. I'm not going to look at my phone. Right. Or check my email.
2: (laughs) Well, and I think you have to do it in that way. Right. The therapist needs to have just you on the screen that they're looking at, not looking at email and other kinds of information, and that you really need to invest that same level of engagement, uh, whether it's in the room or whether it's via computer. And that's a challenge, yeah. right? So we we usually talk about that when we're going to provide treatment via therapy uh, technology, sort of how are we going to do this? Can you make sure you're in a secure room where you're not going to be interrupted? Because this is just like your therapy time. Even you wouldn't get interrupted sitting in my office, I don't want you going to a coffee shop to do this, where you're going to have lots of distractions, you're not going to be able to be private and communicate some of the things you might want to do.
0: I was actually thinking recently, like in preparation for this interview, that like maybe modern day going into an office sitting down or lying on the couch or whatever, with one person without any distractions is a more potent experience today than it would have been 20 years ago, just based on the fact that we don't really do that anymore, right? Like very rarely do I sit down even with like my husband and have like a face-to-face conversation about something for 45 minutes, unbroken, (laughs) you know what I mean? (laughs) And that like, that is very powerful. And like being able to sort of collect your thoughts and think about something, whether I mean, I guess whether it's remote or in person, in a quiet room feels you know, sort of strangely out of the regular routine for most people.
2: Right. And I think that's when you're, if you're going to engage in therapy, no matter what medium you're using to do that, trying to have that very precious time that's for you Mm -hmm. and that's about you is really critical. There are some kinds of therapy where it's really an exploration of some of the, you know, very painful or difficult challenges in your life. There's other kinds of therapy where the focus may be a little bit different in terms of looking at sort of thoughts and how you're approaching the world in that respect that may and they may be more or less suited to in person or via technology and that needs to be sort of a negotiation between the individual seeking therapy and the person able to provide it trying to figure out what's the best fit but there is a huge value in human connection and and you're right that I think the way technology is right now our connections with people have changed.
0: We always like to talk to people who are experts in the field that we're covering. And so this week, we reached out to somebody who is an expert in terms of studying mental health apps and how effective they are and how they work and what to be careful of. And so this next interview is going to give you all some sort of takeaway advice on how to evaluate these and what to look for. And our producer, Jill Webb, conducted this interview.
4: My name is Jennifer Nicholas. I did my PhD in digital mental health and I now work at Origin and the Centre for Youth Mental Health at the University of Melbourne. Um, my background's been in how we can be using apps to facilitate treatment and management of mental health conditions. I think the power of apps is that they're with you all the time. I mean, for better or worse, our phones are integrated into our lives. So that's really powerful in that you can place tools and resources into the hands of people who need them sort of when and where to be accessed when they need them without them having to, you know, reach out to services that, you know, oftentimes are closed or hard to get to or have long appointment lines.
3: Yeah. And especially with barriers to getting mental health help and kind of that access just being able to log onto your phone and kind of talk to a therapist or go through a mindfulness practice is like really a new way to look at things
4: yeah i think that's the attraction that you know there are a lot of barriers to care as you say um cost um just access in terms of uh, long wait times or geographical barriers Um, And also, unfortunately, stigma still exists, which stops people from um, seeking treatment for mental health conditions. So having something that can be discreet, can be on your phone, you can access it whenever you like, can really help, you know, overcome some of those barriers. And we hope that once people have good experiences with an app, that that might spur them to seek further care if that's needed.
3: Yeah, and kind of just going off the idea of experience with an app, I know you've talked a little bit about how sometimes there's an assumption that if an app is in the app store, it's going to work correctly. When you do these studies looking at these apps, what do you look for when evaluating what makes a mental health app good?
4: Uh, Yeah, it's a really complex question. Um, We know (laughs) that unfortunately, there are no quality controls on Mm -hmm. apps available through the app stores. And that really does present a challenge, I think, both for individuals who are looking for apps to support them, but also clinicians who might want to use apps to sort of facilitate and um, extend their treatment. You know, we come at it from a very research um, and have a lot of time on our hands perspective. So we've, you know, developed some things that I've done is develop sort of a set of check marks off either guidelines for apps that present information or um, sort of the tools that are normally used in practice, which back when I was doing some of these first studies were still quite paper and pencil paste and looking at whether the apps that are available um, are sort of checking off those boxes that we sort of made in a list from those tools. I very much understand that sort of the average person and clinicians aren't, you know, going to be inclined to do that. I'd say that Uh, A good mental health app has to sort of have three broad boxes that it ticks. Obviously, being evidence-informed is really important, and that's something that apps developed from researchers or um, health services are quite good at, but unfortunately, the majority that are um, developed from either individuals or companies can miss the mark on. Uh, Apps have to be easy to use and engaging. I mean, this is something that apps out there from companies and individuals might be quite good at. And us researchers have lagged in that area, I think, in truly making our apps sort of appealing to people. But, you know, as good as an app might be for your mental health, if it's not engaging and it's not easy to use, then no one's going to use it and it's not going to do the job. And I think finally, people should be looking at um, how apps protect their privacy and data and where they're sharing that data with.
3: What would you say are some of the examples of kind of boxes you check off when you're looking through, I guess, like factors of the apps? Like I know you've written some things about like addressing symptoms, keeping track of medications. What would be the top like five important things to look for when, let's say, somebody out there is looking to find a new mental health app?
4: Sure. Well, I did my research in absolute bipolar disorder. So um, what I was really looking for is, for example, a lot of um, people with bipolar disorder like to track their symptoms to sort of keep track of either to identify some of the things that may precipitate an episode or to keep track of how they're going and be able to recognize those things and act early. And the tools that we use within clinical practice to help people do that really do ask people to track their mood daily, um, their medication and their sleep. Those are sort of big things, particularly for bipolar disorder, that um, will influence people's wellness. So what I did when I looked at apps that were tracking is I tried to determine, okay, so these three things are generally on clinical tools. Are they reflected in the apps for the disorder. And what we sort of found is the answer was, unfortunately, no. Um, I think it was only a third really um, gave people the option to track all three of those important factors. But even when it came to something as simple as tracking your mood, um, for bipolar disorder, people experience uh, quite a spectrum of moods so they can be feeling well or they can be feeling depressed or they could be feeling manic. And that's, you know, a spectrum of mood that they can experience which is important for them to sort of know where they're at. But a lot of the apps only allowed them to track mood either quite superficially by, you know, clicking some smiley faces or only had them track the sort of depressed to wellness um, section of that mood and sort of ignored the mania. So it was looking at resources and understanding, okay, well, what do people need? And then how do these fit people's needs? Or in a lot of cases, don't.
3: Yeah. And I don't know if this was the same study that you were just referencing. One of your studies mentioned that only three of Around 900 apps you looked at included a full citation to a published study. I thought that was really interesting that there's kind of a lack of, I guess, furthering that education or even just citing it so people know they're actually getting good information from the app versus kind of just blindly following whatever. What do you think about
4: that? Yeah, for sure. I think that's a big problem. And one one of the reasons it occurs is that, you know, if, if you're going to have a citation to a paper in your app, usually that means that you've run a study and you've done the research to show that, yes, your app compared to either another app or compared to um, sort of a treatment as usual sort of condition um, is effective in really reducing symptoms or helping you manage a condition. And unfortunately, that, that research takes time. And as we know, the app store and technology, that sphere just operates so quickly. So, there is that mismatch between how long it takes for research to evaluate an app versus how quickly technology um, can develop apps can and how quickly technology changes. So, there are very few apps out there that actually have studies behind them saying that particular app works, but there are a lot of apps which potentially use techniques and sort of strategies that we know work in other spheres. So for example, like mindfulness, we know that mindfulness can be helpful for people with depression. So if an app is using mindfulness, then it's it's based on something that we know to be effective. So we call that evidence informed. So There is a problem in terms of if we're looking for uh, apps that have references, we're going to find a very small amount. But I think at a next level, we can at least look to see whether the app is using skills and strategies, which we know to be effective in sort of studies and therapies or just sort of real life. And they're using the app to facilitate you in some way to help practice it.
3: And also that these apps that are kind of following the best practices and are Clinically relevant. I know that your study found that there's an issue with them just remaining stagnant in the app store, and they, a lot of them will become unavailable to download. So the app market is kind of volatile. Let's say you start to really like an app, but then it's gone in a week or so. Why is this happening?
4: Um, I think it's just a space that's moving very quickly and that anyone can contribute to. From a researcher point of view, if if we're to develop an app and research it, usually that's where the money stops. So, you know, in terms of research developed apps, being able to then be on the app store and have money to keep it up and update it when the new phone or the new OS comes out, like all that stuff requires resources. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why, you know, for research, we find it difficult because usually um, funding bodies want you to do the study that finds out that it works. So within that scheme, there's very little money for being able to have something that's available and sustained and updated. And I think probably a lot of other people who are developing apps are running into that same issue.
3: Yeah. And just during this developmental phase, what would you say the people who are kind of designing the best apps are Looking for in the design, like looking at socioeconomic status or developing the app for health literacy and being able to read across different levels of knowledge. What are some baseline things like that that are helpful when starting these apps from the ground up?
4: Sure. I think when it comes to design, really the biggest message is that it's critical to involve the intended user from day one. So I'm very lucky to work at Origin and the University of Melbourne, which really put an emphasis on youth involvement. So Origin is a youth mental health institute. And Really re- ingrained within the centre, there are um, pathways to connect with young people and to get young people's input on research and thinking about things. And I think that's in design when you think about the group that's going to be using them, you really want to get their input to understand their needs and to therefore make a product that's eventually going to successfully meet those. So I think that's the same whether you're designing for people of low socioeconomic groups or indigenous individuals, people living with varied um, mental health literacy or even sexual minorities, really including your users from the get-go to understand their needs is really paramount. We are struggling with getting people to use these tools and integrate them into their lives like we would like and like you know maps or um, Uber has seemed to do like you don't generally have to think about what you're going to do if you want to try and go somewhere you know that you just open your apps app and off, off you go so I think one of the big things in terms of engagement is really understanding different user groups and how to meet their needs and how their patterns of use and patterns of needs may be uh, different.
3: Do you think that? the low engagement rate when there is such a need for mental health resources do you think that's just because people are kind of concerned about privacy and trusting the app or it's more of like a use factor
4: I think the engagement puzzles yeah something that I think we're all trying to suss out at the moment actually in research Um, I think definitely some of it has to do with making sure that people are comfortable with the privacy and data sharing that's happening on apps and we know from large things like the Cambridge Analytica blow up that you know these are things at the forefront of people's minds but also I think you know making an engaging tool that meets needs for mental health when a lot of mental health conditions are very varied so someone with depression Two people with depression can have uh, very different experiences, very different symptoms, and also the same person can experience depression and then sort of remit or um, come to a state of wellness and then experience depression again, and even within that person, those two episodes of depression might look quite different. So it is a challenge to build engaging resources for people that experience very different things and then for obviously very different people. So it's it's definitely sort of I think the sort of new frontier in looking at digital mental health apps is really figuring out how we can make these um attractive to users and meet people's needs for varied populations and over um periods of time.
3: Yeah, and even just kind of going over the differences in like two people's the way they handle like depression or the way it affects them. I'm wondering if apps they work better or worse with certain conditions, like do people generally have better results using a mental health app with anxiety or depression or anything across the board?
4: Uh, yeah, in terms of um, efficacy, I think this is like a relatively new and growing field. Most of our evidence at the moment shows that the best evidence for apps is for apps with anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. So um, there are apps out there for a whole range of mental health conditions and um, how we in research synthesize um, an evidence base for something is by doing sort of systematic reviews and meta-analysis, which really um, take the results of a lot of individual studies and combine them together to create sort of a bigger pool of data to then see like overall what's happening. And I think the best evidence at the moment in terms of being able to do that for mental health conditions and for mental health apps that are sort of aiding those conditions is definitely for depression and anxiety at the moment.
3: For anyone listening, is there any apps that you think are really good and that you recommend to people for mental
4: health? Um, I usually don't. And that's, as I've said quite a few times, because, because it's such a fast moving field. But I do have... Some tips that I generally say is that, like, unfortunately, there's sort of not an easy way of identifying something good versus something not, but I would definitely get people first up to check whether the app has a privacy policy or not. I do understand that these are, you know, often written in quite dense language, and by all means, having a policy doesn't mean that they're essentially doing the right thing with your data, but it does give a really clear indication that they're at least thinking about it and with something as – potentially sensitive as mental health data. I think that's really important. Um, the second thing is to just have a look at who the developer are um, clinicians or researchers involved. If so, I think there's a better chance that these apps will have sort of evidence-based um, best practice information in them. And as we've said, a lot of these apps don't have sort of studies that support them, so they don't have that citation saying, yep, this works. But you can have a look at how it's saying how it achieves its goals how it achieves the change how it achieves the decrease in symptoms and have a quick google and see whether that is um, known to be effective and the final thing really then once you think the app's dealing with your data in a good way and is evidence-based potentially has either lived people with lived experience clinicians or researchers involved is like have a download and see if you like it because if you're not if you're not going to use it if it's not you know doesn't fit your needs then it could be the best app in the world but it's not going to be for you
0: I think my takeaway from this episode is that we are in the beginning stages of becoming more comfortable with technology and mental health is something that is so intimate that for some people this might be just fine And for other people, it might not be fine. And so again, it's sort of like you need to know yourself, but you also need to research the specific platform that you're thinking about using and try to consider what your other options are. So if you're at the point where you're sort of saying to yourself, you know, this COVID-19 crap has made me feel really anxious and I've been in my house for three months and I know it's starting to be safer to leave my house, but I'm nervous about how to do that. And I'd really like to reach out to somebody, but I don't really want to go to a therapist and sit in their office and try to figure that out. What I really want is like some coping skills. Then like, maybe you can find an app that does that. We're not going to recommend any specific apps because I you know, I sort of agree with the experts here who are saying like, that's probably not the right way to go. But I think if you're talking about something else that has to do with what Karin mentioned, where it's sort of the family issues that come up or spousal issues or true feelings of of hopelessness, then you really probably need to get more expert advice in person and also develop a relationship. I mean, I think this idea that we have eight weeks to solve a problem is kind of ridiculous. Like I don't think any habits even are really changed in 8 weeks. Like you might be beginning to change a habit, but I find it unlikely that you are going to overhaul some whether it be early trauma or something more serious in 8 weeks and that feels like a band-aid. Maybe that's the, you know, the way to get you comfortable with therapy. Maybe that's it. Maybe you do use these apps and then you realize that you want to go see somebody in person. But I think maybe everybody will have a different different experience with these. I'm Emily Kummler and that was Empowered Health. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to check out our website at empoweredhealthshow.com for all the show notes linked to everything that was mentioned in the episode, as well as a chance to sign up for our newsletter and get some extra fun tidbits. See you next week.